Thank you, Fred. Thank you for the privilege of the pulpit. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be concentrating on verses 7 to 11, but allow your eyes to look back at verses 1 and 3 in Philippians chapter 3. There are a couple of things I want you to see there. As you're turning there, let me say uh, thank you for your partnership with Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Houston for letting your pastor teach for us, for supporting students, uh, for having interns that study there and helping them through. Uh, to prepare people for a lifetime of ministry, you need a good seminary and you need a good solid local church. Uh, so many young folks today, they may be saved in college, praise God, but never had the experience of a healthy local church life. And if you're going to minister in a local church for the rest of your life, it's kind of good to have the experience of being in one for a while. And so the experience of partnering with healthy local churches like Christ Church Katy is very, very important to Reform Theological Seminary. So let me thank you uh, for being partners with us as we seek to prepare the next generation of gospel ministers who are committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, to Reform theology as it's set forth in the Westminster Confession and to the Great Commission. And uh, along those lines, let's look and see what the Apostle Paul has to say to us in Philippians. Um, this is the second half of this little letter of Philippians. And if you notice in verse 1, Paul begins the second half of the letter with these words, finally. And then he goes on half as much as he has in the first half of the letter. And you say, that's just like a preacher, isn't it? You know the old joke, what does it mean when the preacher says, in conclusion, not much. Uh, and that's kind of like the Apostle Paul. He says, and finally, and then he's got 50% more of the book to say after his and finally. But notice what, what he says in his and finally. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And really what follows in Philippians 3 is Paul telling you why he rejoices in the Lord? What, what, what does it take to rejoice in the Lord? In the, we live in a fallen world. Um, this, this morning I mentioned I'm, I'm not your pastor, I'm not your elders. I don't know the, the pain and afflictions and suffering in the congregation. And one dear saint came up to me after the service and just pointed around the room and said, let me tell you some of the hardships that people in this room are going through right now and that message from the word of God was for them and that, that that blessed me to know some of the things that people are going through well Paul knows that we live in a fallen world where where there is sin there is misery and and we live in a world filled with hard things so how do you rejoice in that remember his almost his banner motto for the Corinthians was what sorrowing yet rejoicing so how do you do that? When, when you're facing real sorrows in life, how do you rejoice? Part of Paul's answer to that is truth, doctrine, good theology. Do, do you understand that, that that's why your pastors and elders care about good doctrine and theology? Because it's necessary for rejoicing. Remember, Jesus said that he came so that our joy might be full and he also says in John 14 and 16 that he's taught the disciples so that they may have peace. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but in me 
you have peace. I've taught you these things so that you will have peace in the world. So Paul really kind of gives a doctrinal foundation in the rest of Philippians 3 to tell you how you can rejoice even though things are hard. And we're going to concentrate on what he says, especially in verses 7 to 11. But let me, let me just hint to you ahead of time so you can be on the lookout for it. Paul really points to three particular doctrines that are a source of joy for him in the Christian life. Number one, look at verse 9, justification by faith. You're going to see the language of justification by faith in verse 9. Then, verse 10, sanctification, the doctrine of God sanctifying the believer, making us grow in holiness and godliness. That's an encouragement to Paul in the Christian life. And then, verse 11, the doctrine of glorification. One day we will stand before God made completely righteous in Christ. And those truths give Paul the ability to rejoice even in loss and suffering in the Christian life. And in this little passage, you're going to see he's not just telling the Philippians how it is that he is able to rejoice. He's actually telling them how they can rejoice. And that's why it's written down in God's Word, and that's why I'm preaching it to you today. Because even if you're here today and you're not in a season of loss or affliction or suffering, you will be. All, all of us will be. If you're not suffering now, you will suffer. That's, that's just the way it is in a fallen world. So we want to be able to suffer in hope and suffer in faith. And we want to be able to rejoice even in our sufferings. How do we do that? Paul tells you here. So let's begin with... Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. I want you, there are two parts of the passage. If you look at verses 7 and 8, he tells you what he counts as loss. In verses 9, 10, and 11, second part of the passage, he tells you what he wants more than anything. What he counts as loss, what he wants more than anything. So let's hear God's word beginning in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him 
and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May He write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and blessing as we hear His Word proclaimed. Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers, they fade and they fall, but Your Word stands and it stands forever. Sanctify us with Your truth. Your Word is truth. All Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord. Your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. In this passage, the, the Apostle Paul tells us what he counts as loss in life, and what he wants most. And that's very important for us because he wants us to want that which is of greatest value. And one of the, one of the challenges of life is that we can sometimes attach ourselves to things in this life that are not going to last and value them more than the things that are going to be lasting eternally. And the Apostle Paul wants us to uh, consider well what it is that we want the most. And he tells the Philippians what it is that he wants the most. And he tells them that because he wants them to want what he wants the most. In other words, what Paul is talking about here is not something that's just unique to him as an apostle or a pastor, teacher, or an elder. He's just talking about this is what Christians, th this is how Christians think. This is how Christians think about life. As a Christian, Paul says, I think about life this way. I want you to think about life this way because it's going to help you when you encounter suffering and affliction and sorrow and loss in the Christian life. So let's see first what Paul says that he counts as loss. Look at verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, these things or those things I have counted as loss. Now what's he thinking about there? Right there, he's thinking about his religious pedigree. Look at what he's just said in verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh... If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, he's speaking to religious people who are saying, I don't need the gospel, I'm a good person. And the Apostle Paul says, <clears throat> I'm better than you. I was better than you. This is, let me just make it clear. Religiously, I was better than you. And I was still headed to hell apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. So if, if you think you're religious and you're good and you don't need Jesus and you don't need the gospel, here's what I got to say to you. I was better than you. And I was, on my, I was on the road to destruction even though my religious pedigree was impeccable. And so what he does in verses 5 and 6 is he tells you a seven-part religious pedigree. Listen to this. 
circumcised on the eighth day. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't a Gentile convert to, Christ, to, to Judaism. He was circumcised on the eighth day in a Jewish home. Of the nation of Israel, I am a Jew. I, I am a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of the tribe of Benjamin, I know my tribe. A lot of people lost their genealogy during the exile. Not my family. I can tell you exactly which tribe we came from. We were Benjamites. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You won't find somebody more Hebrew than I am. As to the law, well, let me just tell you, I was a Pharisee. In other words, nobody was more devoted to the law. Nobody was more devoted to the Torah. Nobody was more devoted than the commands of God through Moses than I was. As to zeal, you wonder if I was zealous? Well, let me just tell you what I did. I persecuted the church. I considered the church a bunch of blaspheming heretics. And I was offended at the way that they were dishonoring God. And so I didn't just sit around and complain about it. I actively got involved in persecuting them. That's how zealous I was for the truth of God, for the honor of God. I was a persecutor. As to the righteousness that which is in the law, found blameless. If, if, if you had measured me by the keeping of the law, you would not have found someone who was more impeccable in the obedience to the Mosaic law. I was scrupulous about the ceremonial law. I was scrupulous about the moral law. And yet he says, whatever, those things made me a person who was part of a respected and admired religious class within my people. And I counted those things as loss. Those things would have been viewed as tremendously desirable by my people. I moved them over into my L column. Not a win. I moved them over into the loss column. Those things that many, many people of, of my own culture and religion would have highly valued and that would have put them in a position and a trajectory for leadership and reputation and admiration, I move that over to the L column. Why? For the sake of Christ. Because when I encountered him, I encountered someone who made my righteousness look like rubbish. That's what he goes on to say next. <laughs> when I encountered Jesus, what I thought was righteous did not look righteous anymore. I, I encountered a righteousness beyond anything I had ever experienced in my life along with a mercy and grace. And it changed my life. I was on the way to persecute Christians and Jesus met me and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he changed my life. He converted me. He called me. I was baptized into his body, and I've been proclaiming the gospel to both Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, ever since. He changed my life. I met a righteousness like I had never known existed before. So I moved all of my supposed righteousness over into the L column. 
I gave it up. And by the way, it's, it's probably hard for us to even imagine what Paul lost by what he did. You know, e- e- even today, if, if you may have Jewish friends who have become Christians, and they may have told you what that has meant for their family life. I had a, had a Jewish friend in seminary who had become um, a Christian, and his father told him, when he told his father that he was now a Christian, his father said to him, you are dead to me. His whole family turned their back on him because he became a Christian. I was at another church in, a, in another city a, uh, oh, probably a year ago, and um, there was a young, uh, a young couple that were out of a Christian scientist background, you know, the Mary Baker Eddy and the Christian scientist movement. I had no idea how tight-knit that community was. They had become Christians and they had been rejected by their whole family. It's probably hard for us to even guess what Paul had to give up. Family-wise, culture-wise, religious-wise, to become a follower of Jesus Christ. That's probably one of the things I want to ask him when I get to heaven. Tell me, tell me about some of the things you had to give up to follow Jesus. But he's not finished counting things lost. Look at the next thing he says. Look at verse 8. More than that. Even more than counting my religious pedigree is lost, more than that, I count all things to be lost. So there's nothing in this world that I want more than Jesus. And I, I, I wonder if that may well have to do with Paul's intellect. You know, a, a lot of people speculate on what it was that brought Paul conviction. Paul tells us that the 10th commandment brought him conviction. Remember, he he tells us that the 10th commandment taught him that you can break God's law by coveting. But people have speculated, what was the nature of coveting that convicted Paul? And a lot of people will point to him standing there the day that Stephen gave his speech in Acts chapter 7 and not being able to have an answer for what Stephen was preaching. Here's Paul the intellectual. Paul the PhD Hebrew Pharisee, and he's got nothing to say when this man Stephen stands up and proclaims the Word of God. And many have said maybe Paul's coveting to be able to speak so persuasively like Stephen and not being able to have an answer for Stephen is part of what God began convicting him of sin, a pride in his intellect. But whatever it is, Paul says, everything in this life I count as loss, all things in view of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The thing that he wants more than anything is to know Jesus. This is the only place in his writings where he uses the phrase, my Lord. So this is, it's a very experiential section where Paul is talking about his religious experience. And and by the way, uh, here's how he describes his personal relationship with Christ. 
knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's Paul's language for experiential Christian religion. Very similar to the Old Testament where the idea of knowing God is very, promise, is, is very prominent. Just like the fear of God is one of the Old Testament terms when you want to talk about piety, another Old Testament term is knowing God or walking with God. So also, knowing Christ expresses his experiential relationship with Christ. And he says to know Christ is worth more than anything else. I count all things as loss. And then he goes on to say, for whom, for Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things, but count them but rubbish. It, it, even the things that he has had to lose, he counts as rubbish. Now, I have seen a lot of people become bitter because of what they've lost. Paul is not bitter about what he's lost. He's able to rejoice. How? How, how is he able not to become bitter? I mean, think of this man received 39 lashes to his back five times. I mean, Paul's back must have looked like hamburger. And he's not bitter about it. He's, he's able to rejoice. How does he do that? How do you count all that? Even your suffering, he doesn't, he doesn't make, you know, I, you know, I'd be telling everybody about all the things that I had lost. How does he even count the things that he's lost as rubbish? Because of what he wants and because of what he's found in Jesus. Look at what he says. All of this he's able to count loss in order that I may gain Christ. Now let me pause and say, now hold on, don't you think that Paul has already gained Christ? I mean, he has rested and trusted in Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. Paul's done that. So what does he mean that I may gain Christ? This is clearly the language of Christian experience. Paul is justified but he wants to live even more so in the realization of his justification. Paul is sanctified, but he wants to experience more sanctification in the Christian life. Paul will be glorified, but he wants to live life in light of future glorification. So this is the language of truth being applied to his life so that he matures. And all of us ought to have the same attitude. If, if you're here today and you're trusting in Christ, you are as justified as you will ever be. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you will never be more justified than you are now. But you want to live like you're justified, don't you? You don't want to slip back into trusting yourself. You don't want to slip back into basing your acceptance with God on what you've done. You want to live like life is based on the righteousness of Christ. And you want to grow to be more like Christ. And you want to live in light of the final judgment and being part of God's people at the last day. And that's what Paul is saying here. So he wants to gain Christ. And then listen to what he says, verse 9. 
He begins to meditate on justification. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You know, that, that's one of those great summarizations of the Pauline doctrine of justification. You know, just like there are great passages in the Bible that summarize the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Or, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Or, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? There are these wonderful little summary passages that articulate the gospel for you in very clear, powerful, memorable ways. Well, this is a beautiful, clear, memorable summary of Paul's teaching on justification by faith, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is seeking sand. And then uh, when, uh, uh, when he hears the trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, what? found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's what Paul's talking about here. It, 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 by the way, Edward Mote, who wrote My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, he's even drawing the language right out of Philippians 3.9, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. When, and, and when the trumpet sounds, what? I want to in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone. Moat is drawing that right out of Philippians 3.9. So, so, so Paul's saying, I know that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I teach that. I know that I have been justified by grace through faith in Christ. I've trusted in him. But I want, I want to live that way. I want to live not trusting my religious pedigree or my performances. I want to live trusting him because, look, that's the only way you can have the joy of assurance, right? If your assurance is based on how well you're doing today, well, as Calvin would say, good luck, pal, because experience undulates. You know, one day you have a pretty good day, the next day, you're cussing in your car at bad drivers, okay? And if, if, if your assurance fluctuates based on how you're doing that day, it's hard to have joy. And, and, and Paul, Paul knows that you really understanding justification by faith Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is really important for joy in the Christian life. Um, Augustus Toplady wrote a hymn that you probably know, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. 
about justification. And he wrote it in the, con in the context of the controversy over entire sanctification with the Wesleyans. You know, the Wesleyans were teaching that you can reach a point in the Christian life where you no longer sin, or at least you no longer consciously sin. Perfect love, higher life, entire sanctification. And that really irked Top Lady. And so he, he titled the hymn, Rock of Ages. You know what his title was? Of it was? The, 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 the prayer of the most sanctified man who ever lived. Now listen to it. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. The prayer of the most sanctified man that ever lived is a plea to be covered in the blood of Christ. And what's the last stanza? When I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. So on the judgment day, I stand before you and I don't say, accept me because I'm righteous. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. So Paul, Paul's saying, I want to live the Christian life in, in the constant conscious reality of my justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then, look at verse 10. Here's, here's his next, here's the next thing that he wants. Notice there, there are three so that's. That I, may, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. That's the next so that. There are three so that's. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Three so that's. Here's the second one. Paul knows that there is going to be suffering in the Christian life and he wants to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings and be conformed to His death. He's just said in Philippians chapter 3 that Christ, though He was God, emptied Himself and took on the form of a bondservant and humbled Himself to the point of obedience unto death. And Paul says, I want to be like that. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Him. I, I, it, I don't just want to be justified. I want to be conformed to Christ. I want to be more Christ-like. I want to be more like Him. And I mean, here's the thing. We're all going to face loss and suffering. Is it going to make you bitter? How are you going to respond to it? And, and for Paul, when he, when he faces loss and suffering, part of his attitude is, so did my Lord. And I want to be like my Lord. I want to have resurrection power, not so that I avoid suffering in the Christian life, but so that I suffer in such a way that I become more like Jesus. You know, I, I've, seen, I've seen suffering make people bitter. 
And, and Paul says, that's not, I, I, I want my suffering to be part of being conformed to my Savior. I want to be like him. I, I just saw yesterday on Facebook, I, the, the one thing that I love about Facebook is being able to keep up with Christian friends here and there in what they're going through. And uh, a dear, dear friend of mine, Jill, who lost her little boy Campbell to cancer a few years ago, posted, uh, almost like she's writing to Campbell, been 2,192 days since I held you in this world. And I just, every time I read Jill, I know she is never going to forget that boy. I mean, everybody else in the world may forget that boy. Jill will never forget that boy. Uh, but she's a Christian. And she's not just sorrowing and wallowing in her sorrow when she remembers Campbell because she, she trusts the Lord Jesus Christ and she knows she's going to see Campbell one day. And it, that has totally transformed, uh, transformed her suffering. Um, she really suffers and and feels the loss of Campbell. But she trusts in Jesus more than anything, and she knows she's going to see Campbell again. So her faith in Christ has transformed that suffering. Instead of something that has made her bitter, it's, it's brought out a beauty in her. I mean, I get encouraged in the Christian life every time I read her posts. You know, it's like reading a devotional. To read that woman's post because she believes the Bible and she believes the gospel and she believes the truth. And so her suffering in faith even ministers to my soul. And Paul's saying, that's how I want to be. When I face loss and suffering, I want it to make me more like Jesus. I want to be conformed to him in his death. And as I said this morning, I don't know the loss and the affliction and the suffering that you people in this room are experiencing. But that's Paul, Paul's saying, that's an aspiration. That's something I want, and he wants you to want that too. He wants you to want that too, because he wants you to be able to rejoice in suffering. He doesn't, just, he doesn't want you to just endure it. Okay, okay, endure it. He wants you to be able to rejoice in the Christian life because we have a hope that can't be extinguished by the things that we're going through. And then finally, he tells you a third thing that he wants. Look at verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I don't think Paul's just talking about the general resurrection. Everybody's going to be raised on the last day, the just and the unjust. I think he's talking about the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, he's, he's thinking... When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And I, I want to be numbered amongst the sheep, not the goats. I want my name written in the Lamb's book of life. That, so in other words, he's saying, I know that judgment day is coming. And I want to live my life knowing that this is not all there is. Now, Paul's not saying this life doesn't matter. I mean, he's just said in Philippians chapter 1, I'd rather be with Jesus right now, but it's better for you that I be here. So he knows that, real, that all of us have meaningful, important things that we can do in this life. He's not, he's not dismissing this life as unimportant. You know, it's, it's like a, a parent with cancer who says to his or her child, Honey, I want to beat this because I want to be with you. I, I want to see you graduate high school. I want to see you graduate college. I want to see you get married. I want to see you get started. And I'd love to hold your. I'd love to hold my grandchildren. I want to beat this. 
But I know that when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. It's not that this life doesn't matter. But Paul doesn't want to live like this life is the only thing that matters. You remember he says, if you trust in Christ for this life only, you are of all people most miserable. You know, if this is all there is, chuck Christianity out the window, Paul says. I'm living for the resurrection. It's not just here and now. It's then and there. And when the general resurrection comes, I want to be numbered with the sheep. I want to be standing there with God's people where I'm going to be forever knowing Jesus and praising Him. So these things that Paul wants are life-reorienting things. And Paul is writing this to the Philippians and to you and me because this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means God meant it for your edification. He's writing these things because he wants us to live this way too. These things are not just things for apostles or preachers or elders. These things are for all Christians. How do you rejoice in suffering? Through solid biblical doctrine applied like justification and sanctification and glorification. And how do you face loss and affliction and suffering and trial in the Christian life and still rejoice? Well, because you know that you're accepted because of what Jesus has done for you. And because you know that there's nothing more wonderful than being conformed to Jesus and being like Him and because you want to be with Him forever. And, it, and it, it takes the sting of bitterness out of those things. I, honestly, I don't know how people who don't have this hope make it. I just don't. Maybe they just don't think about it. Maybe they just don't think about it. I don't know how people who don't have this hope make it. And Paul doesn't want you to have to find out. He wants you to make it with this hope. Let's pray.